0: Chase Jarvis. Chase is an award-winning photographer, director, and entrepreneur. He has shot campaigns for Nike, Apple, Samsung, Google, and Red Bull. And his photographs have appeared in nearly every major network and media outlet, including The New York Times, Pulitzer Prize-winning story, Snowfall.
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with Chase Jarvis about his career as a photographer and as an entrepreneur. It
2: doesn't matter if you're creating small things every day that are seen by few, or if you're creating a business that is seen or experienced by hundreds of millions or billions of people. It's all creativity.
1: The interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Howe Conference in May of 2018. Here's Debbie with a word from one of our sponsors, followed by the interview.
0: Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets... HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today?
2: Finally, at long last, I get you into the hot seat. She was telling me all this stuff. She she wouldn't let me see any of the notes. She mentioned my mom. She mentioned a few other things. So apparently, we're in for it. <laughs> ah.
0: Well, you know, I have my research techniques. Let's talk about. Why are you
1: not
2: bas- because
0: I don't have any interest in looking at anybody but you. <laughs> <laughs> No, so for so anybody that, so we're doing a live show, this will be on Design Matters. Um, I have a very small studio and the studio is, is really, my guests and I are even closer than this. Okay, And I think part of the reason I'm able to get so deep and intimate with my guests is because we're literally sitting knee to knee, eye to eye. And so I have to look at you, because okay. otherwise, I... Or should we
2: just not pretend they're not no,
0: there? No, no, no. We don't want to exclude anybody.
2: There's, there's not 2,000
0: well, people last right week, here. Last week, I interviewed Mr. Bingo in London, okay. and I was, it was the same thing. And he was completely freaked out and felt like he was ignoring the audience. And so we don't want you to feel ignored. Um, just feel like you're part of the conversation. How's that? Beautiful. Okay, good. So I want to start to talk about your entrepreneurship. It seems like this is something that you were born with. And I understand that as a kid, you used to go to your local golf course, fish golf balls out of the lakes, and then sell them back to the golfers in between holes, in addition to selling lemonade. Yeah. So hadn't it- what? How? And why?
2: Sometimes it was the same ball that they would hit in the water. I, I would know. go get it and sell it back to them for five bucks on the next hole.
0: And so I understand that the the people that un, that owned the the golf course um, felt that they were um, that you were cutting into their business, but because you were doing such a good job at this, they hired you to run the pro shop one day a week.
2: How do you know this about me? <laughs> this is freaky. Yes, all those things are true, and I don't. Uh, neither of my parents are entrepreneurs, so I don't know where, uh, I don't know the gene in me that was was turned on by the idea of uh, of connecting with others and building something. Um, but yes, that's true. I also had a, a car wash business where I would wash all the cars in the neighborhood to save up money to go buy Super 8 film to make films. Yes, I know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have no idea what it's like. There's a lot of pressure right here. No.
0: Well, I understand that you also have an interesting fondness um, for crows, crows,
2: the, the bird. You really have done your research. This is freaky. Uh, so here's what I think about crows. I think crows get a bad rap. Why? Uh, because people look at them, they make a lot of noise, and, and they are very vocal. Uh, and they're sort of scavengers. I, th- I, I love grit. That's one of my favorite um, characters in Humans. Why um, is that? I think it, it makes the impossible possible. We walk around and, and if we took, was it, it's a Nietzsche quote, like no artist tolerates reality. And if we took the world around us as what it was prescribed, then nothing would grow and nothing would change. And, and we have a, you know, a room full of people who are change makers here, who are creators. Uh, and so in a way, um, I love the character of grit, and crows to me are like the grittiest bird. Huh? <laughs>
0: Interesting,
2: <laughs> and and they—it uh, turns out they're brilliant. Um, they can remember a face for ten years. So if they say if they see you and you how, throw, how was
0: that discovered? Like,
2: would you like me to tell you? This? I would okay, cool. actually. Don't we all so want to So researchers. Know Do you want to know why crows can, okay. So researchers at the University of Washington, Seattle, there's a lot of crows on campus and they started studying them. um, And it turns out that they're very, very wise. Uh, A friend of mine named Josh did a Ted talk about teaching a crow to use a vending machine, to put a coin in a thing to get a thing back. Um, It was a rudimentary vending machine. But it turns out that they're very smart. And if you um, like throw something at a crow, it will remember you. And it will also communicate to the other birds that you're not a cool person. What
0: if you are a cool person?
2: Then they know it and they, they literally don't mess with me. I see crows and they will mess with people that I'm with and they're like, right. peace bro, when they see me. <laughs> respect, respect the crow. That's awesome. And, and it, So the study, I don't want to go too nerdy here, but the study, the researchers, they would wear masks when they did the research because they were afraid of the long-term effects of crow hating. And this is, this is true. It's a, you so you learn it.
0: so much in you, Design Matters episode. Right? Yeah, it's, you learn it's so true. Much.
2: You, you learn very strange things. But the crow is the grittiest bird. It's very smart. It's underappreciated. It's very handsome. It's beautiful.
0: What is so intriguing to you about grit? Uh,
2: I think it's, the, it's our ability to push through things. It's our ability to overcome. Uh, without you know, my... I, I get... I think I got a healthy dose of grit from my grandmother in particular. Um, she was a single mother and basically waited tables and worked in a bar to put her daughters through life and through school. And so I I took, I learned that at a very young age when you're trying to put together, like, have you met my grandpa? Because <laughs> they were separated. And uh, she's like, yes, I know your grandpa very well. Um, and. and I remember observing how she ran her household and when I, was, when I was over there with my mom, had a deep appreciation for what she had made when I realized was a, you know, through a pretty hard run. And uh, in my own life, I started realizing I grew up very confused. I grew up uh, a creative person. I was an only child. And for some, that means you were like spoiled. I was not spoiled. I had like Adidas with four stripes, like the upside down Nikes. <laughs> yeah. Impressive. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, and so in that you know, not being spoiled, I felt like I was trying, I had to decide, I was very creative, but as I was growing up, I, I looked at, wait a minute, the creative kids were weird, and as a you know, an eight-year-old, all you wanna do is fit in. So I also was a gifted athlete, so I ended up sort of just running to the thing that I was, it was easier to fit in as, and um, it was only through sort of skateboard culture, many years later, maybe a decade later, where I was able to understand that you could fuse those two things. And I'd been sort of, and I went to college on a soccer scholarship and I had a- um, Well, you studied on, philosophy. Yep, studied philosophy and was was um, on the Olympic development team for soccer, but it was really skateboard culture that put those two things together. And in skateboard culture, like grit, the ability, concrete is hard. I don't know if you guys know that, but concrete's very hard. And there's this sort of, the, the ability to learn tricks in the face of like more than a skin knee, um, the ability to, um, Created such a DIY culture. I think this, you know, this, the community here um, understands. And grit is a core value of that community. And I think um, that is what helped me sort of grow and evolve and find myself. So I deeply identify with that as a characteristic because, in many ways, uh, it, it's what set me free.
0: You grew up in middle class Seattle. Yeah. Your dad. Representing. Your dad was a police officer and your mom worked at a biotech company. Um, The one that I understand launched Cialis. Yes. Interesting.
2: That's the one with the bathtub with the adults sitting, you know, yeah. And as a kid,
0: you would go around your neighborhood, as you were mentioning, and you'd wash cars um, to raise money to buy a Super 8 camera so you could make films. What kind of films was a young Chase Jarvis making back then?
2: swashbuckling films. Like
0: with Zorro? Z-
2: yeah, literally sword fighting films. Uh, we would cut out ca- cardboard. It was a very short, um, the stunt life of cardboard, turns out is not long. <laughs> so, then a lot we, of testing. Uh, I, yes, a lot of testing. And then we realized that if you'd wrap these swords in uh, foil, aluminum foil, they would last a little bit longer and they would be shiny at the same time. So uh is with those props, basically, that we started making our first films. The first film that we actually screened, uh, here's a side, little side story. So um, saved up money, bought the camera, saved up money, bought the film, hired one of my co-star's brothers, Derek Trolson, to, uh, to record us. All the editing was then in camera. He was not a very good cinematographer, but nonetheless, we, and I think I was age six, um, we made our first film, it was called *Sons of Zorro*. The short version of the film is—and by the way, there's another uh, film that already exists it's called *The Son of Zorro*. This is totally different. Good to know. Just the S is just—it yep. just makes it very different. Um, and we, uh, there was a, a bad—a bad guy, and the bad guy turns out he stabbed me. I see I was you were the just walking guy. down the street. I got ambushed. Bad guy stabbed me. Did I he stab went, you
0: with a pencil? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, I, was, I, I managed to crawl back to my homies. My homies found this out. They went and avenged my stabbing. Um, and there was a princess involved that we went. It was very um, cliche, but I was eight or seven. So going with the stereotypes of the time. And uh, we screened the film. So we made it all on camera. We bought candy for 25 cents, sold it for 50 cents, charged admission, sold out show, my first film and I still have it and I, if I was going to do a keynote instead of sit down with you I would be showing that film right now and you're thankful that we're doing this I'll just say that. I
0: was gonna say I, if you had it with you I'd abandon this as long as no. I've been waiting to do this no just to be able to see that so you were making sons money. of Zorro check it out y'all <laughs> you were making money doing this at yeah. six or yeah. seven or eight years old yeah
2: that's pretty amazing very entrepreneurial well I think that you know there's a uh, this this what has often been seen as a conflict, like art and commerce, um, entrepreneur or artist, and you know, we'll probably talk a little bit about creative live. But to me, you know, again, it's all sort of making; it's all creating. And whether you're creating um, a piece of art, you know, hung in museums and whatnot, or a business, there's this underpinning of creativity that I feel like we do a disservice to one another, to ourselves, in creating a conflict where there really isn't one. And of course. Those are they're often difficult to reconcile, but like individual relationships at any moment in time are difficult to reconcile if you have one point of view and your partner has another, or and it's it's I think about those things more in that vein than I do is sort of completely juxtapose one another.
0: You mentioned feeling that being artistic back in junior high school and high yeah. school made you feel weird. Yeah. Was your effort to Um, be athletic, a way to overcompensate
2: for some uh, of that? absolutely, 100%. No question. And, you know, I think regrets are, to me, that's one thing uh, that I struggle with. I do not want to have them. Um, And to me, like, to date, that's my biggest regret is my lack of ability to, as a young person, process trying to fit in. And, And we've all gone through this, you know, we've all... Um, been vulnerable and realized that we were on the outside of we're all on the outside of something at some point and um, even that little bit of that little boy's life that was on the outside like to me that that stings and I don't want to position it like I had some like again I, I feel like I had all the upside of being um, a great athlete but it felt like many ways it was at a cost of what I felt like was a really important piece of who I was and who we are as people. I mean our ability to create is what separates us from different species. Right? So it's, it's imagination. Like, in, yeah, in part what makes us human. And so in a weird way, because it was creativity that I was suppressing, it felt like I was suppressing a really important, a fundamental part of what it meant to be to be not just me, but to be a human. So
0: what made you decide to study philosophy at San Diego State? <laughs>
2: Well, did you talk to my mother? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, so with as much respect as I can conjure up, my parents, we, we grew up very middle class and um, you already mentioned the background of my parents. I didn't want from, my, I mean, I had a, a roof over my head and I have all those things, the, three, the Adidas with the four stripes notwithstanding um, and I felt like it was if I was programmed in a way, and I think this is something that I'm trying to undo culturally through community is as I was programmed that if you're hardworking, smart, or you care about um, the things you care about, that you should channel that to the things that society, that culture thinks are the right things. And when I was growing up in my time, in my place with my middle-class upbringing, that was, oh, you're smart and hardworking, you're a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or something that was very, like, it was obvious that that was respected, and neither of my parents finished school. And the fact that I was a and only child, b the first person to go to school, c had a couple of other characteristics. I, I decided to be a doctor. Like literally, I remember having a conversation with my uncle. It's like, oh, don't you know, don't mess around. Like if you're gonna do anything, like doctor, lawyer, and everything. It was like, okay, uh, this is someone I respect, and they're okay. So I just em- enrolled in that sort of program. And it was only through doing that for a long time and totally hating it. And in in order to, you know, I did all the pre-med stuff, all the prerequisites, you know, it was whatever, four years, three and a half years into college, and I hated it. I hated so much. I loved college, I loved, because I was playing soccer at the time, and that was a really important part of my life, but this other part was horrible. And I felt like, I'm talking about being on the outside, and everyone loved labs and science and, and biochemistry and all those things that I hated. And so in a way, um, this was something that wasn't that. And it was a thing that when I, I said I was interested in reading and I was interested in philosophical texts and, and you know Siddhartha and some things that really sort of motivated me at that loss of innocence sort of coming of age time. And I found out that you could actually get a degree from doing those things. <laughs> Wait a minute, so I, I ran to that I didn't quit the medical school. I ran to that, and it did an also. So I did both that and and a, a degree in philosophy, and uh, I always build it as I was going to do this and be a, a more well-rounded doctor, a very philosophical, um, ethical doctor. And my poor parents, like so, I went from going to go to medical school, and then oh, going to be a professional athlete. Okay, I decided I didn't want to do that. Then I'm going to be a, a doctor, and then wasn't going to do that, and then going to be a. Um, at least a, a, another kind of doctor, a PhD, and then when I dropped out of that t- to to become a photographer,
0: they they're laughing, laughing for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. it's like you get... Well, immediately after graduating college, your grandfather had a heart attack and died. Yes, and you were then gifted his cameras, which you described as permission to go and explore the world. So you put those cameras in a backpack and went and explored the world, with yes. your then girlfriend, who's now your wife. What were you seeking?
2: I think I was trying to make up for all those years that I jammed away and didn't sort of, uh, didn't acknowledge the, the creative side that we all have. Um, if, you, if you walk up to the front of a, a second grade classroom and you say, who wants to come draw me a picture? Every single one of those hands goes up.
0: Absolutely.
2: And then you try that again at fourth or fifth grade and half as many go up and you try that at sixth and seventh and eighth and 10th, and you know where this is going. And then by you know, the time you're graduating high school, there's one or two people in any class that would wanna come up to the front and draw a picture. And so for me that, um, I don't know if I was, I think when I, when I had the opportunity uh, it was obviously terrible. My grandfather, like a week before, just dropped dead of a heart attack, nothing, no plan, like just, one day he was gone. And he was, the, he was the type of guy that the camera manufacturers loved. He had all the little gadgets and the lenses and all that stuff. And I had to date only really played around with uh, my father's camera and he only had one lens and he grew up, or I grew up with him photographing me, but that was his and not really mine. And so this was an opportunity to run toward that creative thing. Um, I mentioned skate culture a couple times. Photography was such a, uh, photography, punk music, um, and and spray paint, was. You know, those were a huge element of skate culture. And I always noticed that when I was skateboarding, there were uh, usually photographers at the pool or at the ramp or whatever. and that I had never really fully embraced that. I touched it, but it was mostly through the ability to express oneself and to spray paint and to, um, I was in a band for a very, very short time. I was a terrible lead singer. There are no videos, I've burned them all. I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So ultimately I think I I was trying to redeem lost time and when I, and I mentioned sort of regret, like I, I can't think of other things in my life that I regret, that is a very big one. And I think that's been a big driver in my in my career to fully embrace that because it was something that was so fundamental to who I was and so um, fundamental to being human that, and I'd replaced it. So I just went all in. And it was when the silver lining for my grandfather dropping dead was, as you mentioned, me getting his cameras um, and it was just, two weeks right before I decided that I was gonna take all the money that I had in my bank account, which is not very much. Got a little gift from my parents and a little gift from my, my grandmother to go walk the earth. You know that line in Pulp Fiction? Like, I'm gonna walk the earth. I'm gonna be like Kane from Kung Fu. That's what I wanted to do.
0: But you said that, I, I believe that you've said that philosophy really helped you find yourself as a photographer in that it required you to be honest about your intentions and about what life really meant
2: oh there's no question about it and, and I think that's what people you know everyone pretty kind of laughed and like I was going to become a, a it, there was two phases of laughter when I was going to be the the philosopher from being a doctor everyone's like oh okay and then then there was the other one which was when I said I was going to become a photographer but in the philosophy world I think the way my wife puts it she's like yeah I thought that was the thing that dumb jocks did to try and get the degree as fast as possible but I, I truly believe that what, what philosophy does is it more than anything, it's a tool for critical thinking. And you can apply, you know, people say, how do you, you know, do you use your degree? I'm like, I hate that question because I I don't really respect school as much as I should. But um, specifically, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I I think you get it. Like, I, 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 you get it.
0: When you came back from the trip, you still were thinking about going back to school. You had taken your MCATs. You were thinking about your PhD, and then you quit all of that. And your your first job, um, after that experience, you were tuning skis for $10 an hour in a ski shop, and you licensed your first image, your first photograph in 1994
2: for $500 and a pair of skis. Yes, very important second part, the pair of skis. Because that was the currency that I was dealing in.
0: Right. So what was the photo and what was it like for you at that point to make a sale, your first sale?
2: Sure. So speaking of the philosophy part, so what philosophy taught me to do is two things. One, to think critically, to apply intention, which I think is the foundation of art. Like if I spilled my bottle of water here and it was an accident, that's not art. If I spilled it on purpose as a piece of performance, then it's art. So there's this huge part of intention, which I really got from from philosophy. When we moved to Steamboat, Colorado after the Europe trip, I I was just, I was passionate about living life and exploring and it was in my travels in Europe with my then girlfriend, now wife, where I acknowledged that I wanted to do this and I wanted to do it somewhat surreptitiously um, because I was still somewhat ashamed of pursuing something that seemed in my culture, in my family, in my time, like, wow, you're gonna go for that, okay, okay. Um, And I think when I was able to couch it in being a ski bum it seemed like it was okay, because I was at the time in my life, I was waiting tables and trying to ski 100 days a year. But when I, I applied myself, again, added intention to the mix and decided that I wanna take photographs, I was in one of the most, you know, the, the, the metaphorically richest places in the world in, in the middle of Colorado with some of the best ski and snowboard athletes in the world. I had a camera. I could actually ski really well as well, so I could go, where, go anywhere and do those things. And if you know like if you pursue something you're passionate about you're more likely to be good at it and so i put those two things together and i was able to make great photographs in part because of teaching myself composition very painfully through traveling through europe back now in steamboat colorado doing something i love and it was just the, the culmination of all these different pieces and that intention part that I mentioned that I learned from philosophy. Took this photograph, it happened to be of next year's ski because I worked at a ski shop that was very future forward. It, it tuned the skis for the US ski team and this is all dumb luck, like I'm just randomly here. Um, and we skied, or we, we, we tuned the skis for the US ski team, the freestyle team and that put me in contact with great skiers and we got next year's equipment all the time to test in our shop. So when you have, that's part of like getting photographs bought is you have to buy them before, I don't know how that happens. I don't, um, excuse me, Um, that was my phone ringing. Um, when, When you're trying to sell something, being ahead of the curve and having something that other people don't have, turns out that's valuable in the marketplace, I had that. So it was a culmination of like 50 different things that made it so that I could sell a photograph And remember I'm making 10 bucks an hour and I threw out, I went to the library, I looked in the card catalog, found a, a book about photography business, read the book, went to the ski manufacturer who was passing through and said, I have this photograph. He said, it's amazing. He put me in touch with someone else and my first offer of $500 and a pair of skis to license, not to give, to license that photograph was immediately accepted and when you do that in business you should be like shit because you always want to have to think about it a little bit longer right
0: what made you decide to license it as opposed to sell it
2: um, I think the concept that I was creating something of value and that, that could be licensed over and over and over um, was I think it was something that again it, it's, there's, I'm of two faces here one is I believe that that is part of the ethos of skate surf sort of culture, is that what you make and what you do matters. And so I, I, there was, I believed inherently that there was value in the work that I'd created and that book, which I, I should try and track down that book because you know it talked about sort of the concept of licensing rights to use something for a very narrow scope. And, uh, and that I did that and was able to, um, Again, it was just an immediate yes. And I'm making 10 bucks an hour, so you do the math. I can either work, and the skis were probably worth, you know, five or $800. And so I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I went skiing with my friends and I got this picture and I sold it for the equivalent of 100 hours of my time. I would like to do this again. (laughs) And it was literally the act of pulling it off once that sort of painted a picture for me that it was possible. And I remember telling my parents uh, that I had done that and it was very unusual for them. They were like, huh, okay, well, uh, how's your medical school application going?
0: (laughs) I Uh, thought they were gonna ask you, how is your medical insurance going given the skiing?
2: There's a funny story. I got medical insurance on a Wednesday and on Thursday I I, uh, tore all the ligaments in my thumb and had a $12,000 surgery. Like literally 24 hours. I had
0: that happen, but not from skiing. There you
2: go. You see my scar right there?
0: I got the same one. (laughs) (laughs) You found this book in the library, and essentially, from what I can understand, that is the sole education that you undertook in becoming a professional photographer. Yes. You, you had this little throwaway line just a few moments ago where you said that you learned composition as you were traveling. Well, just because you do something over and over and over again doesn't mean you're going to get any good at it. You went around the world studying composition. How, how did you learn composition as you were composing photographs?
2: The same way we all learn, right? Repetition, uh, comparison, um, imitation, these are all foundations How of learning. How did you
0: find your voice? How did you find your...
2: I uh, hadn't yet found my voice. I, I think that was, um, that's also, uh, I, I'm pretty prescriptive about this. this is, you really only can get that through repetition. Um, I was able to make photographs that looked like the photographs in the art books that I was reading at the time. I was wildly, deeply, passionately inspired by Jean-Michel Basquiat, Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, the artists of New York in the sort of 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s because they were doing things that, there was a meta layer to what they were doing, right? They weren't just making art, they were making art about art and Warhol had taken things off the the supermarket shelves and put them into uh, museums, and and Basquiat had taken them off the walls of New York and into galleries, and so there was this meta-narrative that was going on, and I knew that that was wildly inspirational to me, Um, and I also knew that they were, I mean, Warhol had the factory. I mean, just the concept of the factory has repetition as one of its foundations, right? and Basquiat, obviously, wildly prolific, and it was those two things that influenced me to decide to say, well, wait a minute, if I'm too attached to one thing, it's gonna be hard to learn, and so let's treat these things a little bit less preciously. I was very precious on the value of my work in the marketplace because of a a single book that I had read under duress trying to make 500 bucks, Um, but on the other side, like the sort of the the, the self-facing side, I was wildly disconnected from good or bad, and I was more into making. And it was that process of making, both when I was on the, on the road in Europe. Um, and remember, this is like, I care to mention how long ago, it was a long time ago. And so it was, you'd, you'd shoot a roll of film, you shoot 24 pictures. And I was taking a picture, exposure number one, F8, 250, kind of sunny photograph of Eiffel Tower and then photograph two, so everything I took, and then I would get them developed when we'd save up enough money, we would eat beans and tuna fish for like a week to be able to take the extra money from not eating um, fancy meals to develop film, and that was the way I learned. So it was very painful, very slow, so you end up paying very close attention when it's that hard and that slow. I mean, today we can take, you know, a thousand pictures in 15 minutes and just be learning in real time. Well, there was this delay. And uh, and so I think that made me pay very close attention. And to be able to pay close attention and not be precious, I think, is a really good recipe for learning. So f- sort of taught myself through imitation. And it was also very inspirational to be in Europe traveling around a culture that at that time, especially relative to the United States, was widely valuing art and creativity at at a degree that the US hadn't really um, openly embraced in my mind. And uh, so it was sort of the culmination of those things that helped me understand how to teach myself. We can't really ever teach ourselves, right? There's all kinds of influences, but uh, I I guess that's sort of, those are the building blocks at least.
0: 11 years ago, you were caught in an avalanche in Alaska while working on a campaign for a major brand and you got hit with enough snow to fill five to 10 football fields with about 50 feet of snow. You managed to escape, but you thought you were living the dream at the time, mm-hmm. and that experience shook you to the core. How did, how did it change you? And how did you escape?
2: Uh, I think it would be tedious as hell for me to explain how, because the, the process of figuring it out, um, I don't know if anyone if you're, anyone who's listening right now or, or watching here in, uh, in Boston has come very, very close to death where um, I don't need to go into details about an avalanche, but uh, the, 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 the mountain cracked behind me and it was about 300 feet long and it was about 10 feet deep and I was on that thing that was sliding down a 1800 foot vertical face, not vertical, 50 degrees. Skiing things that hadn't been skied before with the best skiers in the world. And I just happened to with, I mean, I had extensive avalanche training, avalanche awareness, all of that stuff. I was with literally the best skiers and snowboarders in the world with world-class guides. And that's the, when you ski, basically shoot skiing and snowboarding for a living, all of your, there are times after storms where it's the most dangerous. And if you live in that world, you spend all of your time in the most dangerous narrow, um, time to be in the mountains and so it it ends up being a little bit of a numbers game but when you're caught in something it's that magnitude the concept of like getting out of it is 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 very it's pretty much like there's a couple things you're going to do to try and make it so that they can find you and when the avalanche is the size of that one um it's you're basically a goner and i realized all those things and if you've had a near-death experience time slows down um there's all your references and I was doing all sorts of calculus in the moment and so instead of like going into painful detail of as I was going over I could feel my right ski hit that I I could relive all that and I could write a 20 page book about the 20 20 seconds that I was in what's called the white room Um, and it's actually not white it's very black because you're basically I was rolling down the hill at about 50 miles an hour with snow, some of it the chunks the size of like Volkswagens, and and just imagine that plus a billion BBs, which is all this little snow. And so um, without going into the weeds, I, I managed to, I, I survived. And, um, sorry, it's, it, was, it, was, it was legit, it was, it was serious. And uh, when you survive something like that, and you think, well, I'll just say me, I don't wanna say one, I don't wanna project, but I thought that I was doing my life's work. I had transitioned, I would left the culture and the world that everybody else wanted for me and found my own path as a creator. And I was doing as well as you could do shooting for, this was a you know, Fortune 100 brand with your friends in Alaska, unlimited helicopter, like it doesn't get any better, you know, huge budgets, all that stuff. And, um, and after that moment, like. It, I was immediately transformed. I mean, I remember the night that it happened, laying in bed, completely sleepless, saying everything that you had done to date, I think we, we all understand this as, as independent artists, I, I believe we do at some point, which is in order to make a living and a life doing what you love, you have to stomp out your space. You have to, otherwise there's a lot of people who will take that space. <laughs> and so it feels a little bit competitive. I, I, I've." I've heard life talked about in two arcs. One arc where it, you have to figure out it's about you. I mean, even the think of a child, child's very egocentric, right? So in, the, in, a, in a young adult world, in our, the early part of our creative career, we have to establish who we are and what we believe and think. And then in that moment, I was like, wait a minute. Like, if you're so focused on living this life that you've very proudly carved out for yourself, you're living your dream, and yet how many lives are you affecting for the better? So I remember in that, that moment realizing that I needed to do something that transcended me as an independent artist, but also embraced the thing that I felt like was the best thing um, outside of my wife Kate in my life, which is the ability to do what you love as a creator for a living. And so how could I fuse those two things, include a community of as, as many people as possible and then and simultaneously You know, fuel my own fire. And it was, it ultimately was, I was going to try and inspire um, other people to pursue, A, pursue their passions, B, understand that there's a creator in all of us, and C, that you could put those two things together to live uh, a life that you would aspire to.
0: Because I have a somewhat fixed amount of time, I want to talk to you about three more things. The first is the big article called Snowfall in the New York Times. Um, You were involved in this amazing multimedia storytelling project about a fatal avalanche in Washington State, which won a Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Um, What was your involvement, and, and why have you not pursued more of that kind of work?
2: Um, well, first of all, to be clear, to, to be able to be involved in a project of that magnitude, I don't know if you, anyone, like, uh, who's listening at home right now or, or sitting with us is, like, the New York Times put, I think, like, 80 people and millions and millions of dollars. They built websites, and it was like you could fly around on the... I mean, this was one of the first it was big think,
0: multimedia pieces that the New York Times did.
2: Yes. And I, I remember it seeing it.
0: I didn't even yeah. know you at that yeah. point. I remember seeing this, thinking everything's going to be different after this. Yeah.
2: It was literally a mark in time. Yeah. And so, um, when you work on a project that's lar- that 's large, to be clear, I did not personally win a Pulitzer Prize. I was a part, part of, of it of the project that okay. did the, the winning I think the genius in that was the research and the writing, so it was appropriately directed at those folks. but to be able to be a part of something like that was it, it did two things. one, it helped me see again what was possible um, and it was also an amazing opportunity to um, to contribute, bless you, Sorry. to contribute because the victims in this avalanche um, was, one of the victims was one of my very dear friends. And so it was a way of processing. Um, remember, I had almost died in an avalanche not long before that. And so um, still haunts me, still, I'm still infinitely aware of it. I still do that kind of activity. It was, you know, I was in the back country not too long ago engaging that same behavior, but I just take a much narrower uh, view of that and, and don't do it as much. But so to lose one of my dearest friends in that same way, to know what he went through in the moment of his death and then to be asked to contribute in, in some way, it was just like, it, it was a beautiful first full circle. And it also inspired the hell out of me because I could see what was possible. I could see where all this was going. I could see that creativity plus technology was important. It's so powerful. It was this amazing force for good. And I also realized in that moment, I think I had known it before, but the power of an image, the power of an image to be a part of something that has a sort of a tech underpinning and could be seen and experienced at scale Like that was really early sort of UI UX in a browser. Like that hadn't really happened before then. So it was an incredible project to be a part of and to be clear, like I was, you know, there were people who spent months and months and months working on it and researching. And I had just, I had pictures of Chris and I had lived a lot of my young life at that ski area where this horrible tragedy had happened. So it was an incredible eye-opening experience though. And it really helped me understand the power uh, of an image.
0: So the next two topics are first, best camera, and then second, creative live. So if anyone is interested, and and I think that everyone is, um, you can go read all of the details about this on Chase's blog. Um, The story is titled, My Biggest Failure, The Story I Was Too Ashamed to Tell. So tell us about that story that you were too ashamed to tell?
2: That is a wicked open-ended question. I know. (laughs) Um, So in about 2007, a couple of phones came out that had cameras. Remember those, the Razer, the Palm Trio? They were horrible phones, but they were like, they had a camera in them. And there was something, I was deeply passionate about photography as we've been talking about for a long time. And in some way, because I had been living that world so intimately, and at some point I had also, about 2004 or five, I'd started building a community online through Blogger. Uh, it was then Google Video, was before YouTube. Um, and I wasn't building a community for any other reason than to actually learn and connect with others because the photography industry, not dissimilar to the design industry not long ago, was very closed. And the concept of sharing your work, I mean, I was talking to some folks last night at your cocktail gathering where they were like, oh, like in the UK, we don't really share like what we're working on or, and, and so in the US at the time, and I think culturally, globally, it was just very, it was frowned upon to talk about your creative secrets and what you are doing. And I needed those secrets. I needed to understand them. And I also, I saw that information wanted to be free and move quickly because of the internet. And so I started um, when people are lamenting that this, this thing is coming to bowl us all over and we're all gonna lose and it's gonna suck. I was like, well, if, if, if it's an inevitability that information's gonna move quickly, how can we lean into that? So I started telling stories uh, and sharing what it was like to be a photographer, and here's my settings, here's my vision, here's what I think about, here's how I talk to clients, here's this shoot, and I started making videos. But There was no such thing as behind-the-scenes videos. Like the term didn't exist if you searched it. And that it, it accidentally had the effect of creating a community because I was talking about what we called the black box and that you put, you know, money and a photographer and some concepts and art concepts in one end of this box, and out comes a campaign with a star and a hero and print and digital and all these different things. but no one knew what that was like. So I started telling those stories. Incidentally, built a large following, um, and again, on blogger. I had a million readers a month um, in probably 2005 or six. When 2007 came along, cameras started having phones or sorry phones started having cameras. See how crazy that is, right? We flipped those things, right? I don't even know what this thing is. Oh, it's just a camera. Um, and I started to take, I found that I actually was more inspired by the idea that I would always have a camera with me. So I, I popularized a phrase that goes, the best camera is the one that's with you. And And what that understood was that Images aren't about dynamic range or megapixels or if you have the newest, latest, greatest things. It's 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 that images are about stories, and they're about moments. And if the best camera is the one that's with you, allows you to have a photograph that you otherwise would not, because that's what we all lamented prior to that time. Was like, oh, if I just had my camera. Well, your big camera is at home, in a case. When that one thing that you didn't expect to happen happened. Sure, we all had them out for birthdays and weddings and all that kind of stuff, but it was all the off moments, which I actually believe deeply are how we should look at our culture's art. Um, I did an installation at the Ace Hotel about the snapshot, and I, I believed then and believe now that snapshots are the true character of what a culture is, not the stuff that's hanging in the museums and the galleries. And so the idea of a snapshot being with me all the time, um, I started to embrace mobile photography. And then in 2007, when the iPhone came out, um, I I really saw that that this was going to be massively adopted, not just in the sense of taking pictures of the things we've talked about, but taking photographs of receipts and that there was gonna be, it's, it's a visual language, right? And did an iPhone app in 2009 when Apple allowed you to submit apps. so uh, It was the first iPhone app that allowed you to take a picture. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Take a picture, add a cool filter, and then share it on social media. Heard of that before, haven't you? So it ended up that that, uh, it went on to be the app of the year in 2009. And I had turned my photography studio largely into an incubator realized that with an audience um, in the millions, that clients were a nice to have, not a requirement. And you could be very choosy. And so I started thinking about how photography and creativity could be scaled using technology. And with the best cameras, the one that's with you. Um, so it went on to be successful, but there's a twist. Um, you hear the twist? So the twist is that um, this was a year and a half or two before Instagram, and um, after it was, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all that App of the Year kind of stuff. I went on a global speaking tour because this concept was very radical, and um, it. I built a little company around it, and I had outsourced the development to a firm which will remain nameless unless you go read the blog post, and I think it's in there maybe. Um, and it turned out that we had a, it was a work for hire agreement, but there was a bunch of things that were casual when you're trying to develop something quickly and be out in front of a market. And for example, we put it out on this development firm's Apple, th- their um, developer account instead of mine, because it, at that time it took like eight or 10 weeks to get an account, you didn't know it was the black box of a different kind where you just sent something into the void and you hope that you got approved by Apple. So to, sh- to shortcut that timeline, we said, yeah, okay, you put it out, but I had a bulletproof contract, work for hire, they gave me, I owned all the code. Short story too long, we were way out in front of everybody and after about a course of a year, they were not doing the things that they were supposed to to keep up the code. Um, and when Instagram sold for a billion dollars, I mean, I, there's somewhere there's a video of Kevin, of Robert Scoble asking Kevin Systrom, hey, isn't this just a copy of Best Camera and he, skillfully dodges the questions as a tech founder would at that time. And I, I don't have anything against Kevin. I think it was it's, it's an amazing app. It's transformed our culture. Um, but the, r- the real story for me was um, I learned that if you can make a great idea once, you can make a great idea again. And that being first doesn't entitle you to anything. That there's a whole set of things in the technology world especially that that is my biggest failure from a business and a creator perspective, but I, I only feel stronger and smarter and more connected and empathetic and open because of that experience. Um, and I think I'm sure I'll have more. Uh, it, was, it was very, it was powerful. And can I, can I have a little slight divergence here? D- does anyone know how many languages there are in the world? Just take a guess, anyone? I'll tell you, there's 7,000 106 languages, 7,106 languages. And it would be impossible for any of us to learn even a hundred of those languages, even to be proficient to say, I love you, to say goodbye, to say, I miss you, will you marry me? And yet when any one of us looks at a photo, we know it immediately, intuitively. When you see the love that a mother has for a child in a photograph. So I've learned to start thinking about my role in photography and my mission as a, as a human to do anything that I can to unlock that. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Creative Live in a second, but in the moment of my avalanche and with this amazing failure, what I realized is that I wanted to create. Um, a living and a life around the ability to help others become fluent in this language, to realize that it is the most powerful language. I mean, if if this device here, I'm holding my iPhone in my hand, if it is a Swiss army knife, then five years ago, the, the camera was the toothpick. And now it's the blade. It's the most important part of this tool. The data is unrefutable. And this is not only is it is photography a universal language? Does it transcend geography, orientation, race, language, culture, time? But it's the future of AR, of VR. If you've watched a 14-year-old communicate, it's all through images, and we're not turning back, people. Photography is a universal language, and so if if my failure, not getting the billion dollars, not um, sort of having everyone walk around saying, oh, I'm gonna best cam this as opposed to Instagram this. I'm totally fine with that because I've committed my entire life now to helping provide access to what I think is the world's next great universal connective tissue.
0: Did you always feel that way? Did you have any sense of depression or sadness?
2: Yeah, I had a ton of it. And I think um, Brene Brown is a mutual friend of ours. and. Um, She's been on your show, she's been on my show. Um, she talks about this thing called gold plated grit, which is as, as humans or as creators or entrepreneurs, our ability to just say, oh, and it was so hard, it was my biggest failure. But then, ta da, you know, then we just go right on to this next big success story, which is what I'm kind of trying to yeah. wade carefully here because I don't want to do that. I want to, like, it was terrible and I didn't show it. Um, I was disappointed and when Instagram sold for a billion dollars, I got a lot of phone calls um, and I was like, man, you know, that was, that was first, that was cool, that was best, that, but it doesn't really matter. The reality was I experienced this sort of gold-plated grit um, and for a number of reasons I actually, there were legal reasons, um, I did not join Instagram until about a year ago. Um, specifically because I was preserving some legal rights and I decided to let that go because that was part of my healing process. And what an amazing experience to realize that what your true value is, what your true aspiration or inspiration, in this case, to help people understand that photography is universal language and that there's a creator in all of us, um, that this was my true calling. So it was sort of, again, through that sort of, we don't, life doesn't happen to us, it happens for us. And this was a, a really important part of that processing. And I think, what I realized also, because that was a business, right? It was a, it was a creative business. We created this idea of filters at the bottom of a thing that you swipe left and right, and then you choose one, and it, like, all that didn't exist. The UI didn't exist. And while I'm proud of that work, I think I'm more proud of acknowledging at that point, because there was a part of me as a creator that said, oh man, I'm, I'm not a business guy. I really thought about, and I had plenty of opportunities to sell that for never work again money, even though it wasn't Instagram, and I decided not to. The reason I didn't then is not dissimilar to that same problem that I had of reconciling my creativity with my athleticism. In this case, it was reconciling being a creator with being an entrepreneur, and I thought they were different things, even just you know five ten years ago. And what I realized is that it doesn't matter what you're creating. It doesn't matter if you're creating small things every day that are seen by a few, or if you're creating a. a, a A business that is seen or experienced by hundreds of millions or billions of people that it's all art it's all creativity and there's this amazing I have had the fortune of reconciling those two things and again not dissimilar to how skate culture set me free I feel like the understanding of that that failure was able to say oh man it's on And so I felt like I was able to unlock that, and that is, I ended up leveraging everything into your next question here about Creative Live.
0: Tell us about Creative Live. Creative Live is a force of nature. CreativeLive.com. Explain to anyone in the audience that might not be familiar what Creative Live is and why you started it.
2: Um, Well, what it is, is it's the world's largest um, education platform targeted specifically for creators and entrepreneurs. it's where the top names in photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, uh, and a channel we call Money and Life, which is the ability to make a living in a life doing what you love in and around creativity. Um, it's a, a community of 10 million people and folks like Debbie Millman um, are on it. Uh, on the entrepreneur side, it's, it's folks like Richard Branson, Branson and Tim Ferriss and um, Ariana Huffington, Brené Brown, um, and in the photography, like analogous people in each sort of world, and there's, it's, it's highly curated. It's not a two-sided marketplace, so it's not open for anyone. We choose that stuff very carefully, um, but it's just a, it's a lovely community where 10 million people come together and learn from the world's best, and there's um, part of my ethos as a creator when I was you know, back in the blogger days, trying to shed light on the black box of photography. That was all free. And, and when people and, are
0: taping shows live, they're yeah, free. Yeah,
2: anyone in the world can come and, and participate in Creative Live and watch for free while we're making the content. And we broadcast 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in all of those channels. And uh, and we've had billions and billions and billions of minutes of education consumed on our platform for free. And we'll always, always always have something for free, something for everyone. And I think that's part of what creates a, an inclusive culture where if you're going from one to 10, you're a, a novice and you want to be an expert, or you're, you're creative curious and you're going from zero to one, like there's something there for everybody. So it's, a, it's an education platform.
0: You've said that what you're doing with Creative Live is really just the beginning and the future of education isn't about a four-year degree. What is the future of education?
2: Uh, it's largely self-directed. It's largely digital. It's not exclusively digital. In the creative live world, we still have an in-person class that flies in from all over the world to sit in the audience so the teacher can have someone to teach to. Um, We've made made about 10,000 hours of that content. Um, And I think everyone who's in the audience and probably those who are listening, they understand how they learn. And the reality is that if our our parents had one job, um, we will have five, and the next generation will have five at the same time. And the the school system, the inherent school system is based on the factory and the farm, both of which are reasonably outdated when it comes to a linear progression where you do one thing and then you do the next thing and materials come in one end and we try and create a bunch of like items that are coming out the other end of the factory. Um, People go to school on a schedule that matches the seasons because of the harvest. I don't know too many people that are actually like out in the fields in the summer um, and so knowing that those two things are, are really out of time, um, the future is we will learn so fast relative to any any formal infrastructure that that infrastructure, just because of its physicality, will not be able to evolve fast enough and And so creative live aspires to when a new you know piece of uh, of software drops, we have that software on the platform the next day and and I think not just creative live just just generally speaking that's a really powerful concept to realize that you can tap into it i think that's a thing that that is a, a core value of ours as access providing access not just to to folks like yourself and, and others um but also to transcend geography so that of course i want to acknowledge that you do have to have an internet connection and that it's a real thing that we need to as a culture provide internet in underserved areas but i think that's that's there are people who are qualified to work on that and they're working on that problem. But also to transcend the concept of degrees and the concept of the future is way more about a portfolio than it is a resume. And they're gonna borrow that from, from creativity. And, and creativity, in case you were at, at all, it was ambiguous in any way, creativity is the new literacy. Okay, creativity, if you look at literacy Literacy, before it used to just be reserved for aristocracy and the wealthy and people of privilege. And when they realized that if we taught that to the rest of the world, that things like infant mortality went down, that the concept of science was possible because of literacy. So the people at that time, before literacy, it was the Dark Ages. Afterwards, that the, the printing press. Afterwards, it was the Enlightenment. So the same thing is true for creativity. I gave a talk at The Next Web where they were saying, Oh, you know, it was all about AI and robots. And I was the sole sole person standing on a stage in front of 5,000 people saying that AI doesn't happen without the creative people who can envision it. Everything that's around you, every chair, everything we're sitting on, the floor that our feet are on right now was designed by somebody with intention, probably no smarter than you or I. And it didn't exist before that. And the first thing that existed was a picture. It was drawn by an artist. It was a concept. So if you've ever wondered how important what it is that humans do and the role that creativity plays in this big, huge thing that we're a part of, it matters, it matters deeply. And, and if we can think of creativity as the, as the new literacy, I think that's probably what will you know, is something that I'm, I'm aspiring to live up to that um, phrase, I guess, in, in the work that I'm doing.
0: Chase. Yes. It has been an absolute honor and privilege to sit here and talk with you. I wish we could talk for another couple of hours. I think we will. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Chase Jarvis. Thank
1: you. You guys appreciate it.
2: Can we give it up for Debbie as well, please?
1: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.